In the private sector, customer satisfaction surveys are an often used and pretty powerful accountability tool. David Bonbright of Keystone Accountability realized 18 years ago that if we combined the principles behind customer satisfaction surveys with participatory practices which originate in the NGO sector, this could really make NGOs more accountable. His quest since then has been to offer tools to empower such constituent voices. In this interview, you will hear how constituent voice can make NGOs more outcome-focused, but also why the practice continues to lag behind NGOs' rhetoric. Hello, and welcome to NGO Solon Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. Good day, everybody. I am pleased to talk on this very unusual day with um, the co-founder and chief executive of Keystone, David Bonbright. And Keystone, in case you don't know it, is an international charity that's dedicated to bringing constituent feedback to social change practice. And we're going to talk about what that word constituent feedback means. Why I'm talking about this being an unusual day, because we're, of course, in the middle of um, the huge uh, outbreak of uh, the coronavirus. And um, David and I are both kind of recalibrating our inner beings perhaps and trying to focus still on the the parts of our work that are still equally important whether it is about quality or about values we're trying to to stay focused on that but we're all recognizing that we're all going through a lot of of turmoil but back to the topic of today so constituent voice is a methodology uh, of planning doing measuring and communicating when we listen as nonprofit and NGOs to those who are meant to benefit from our activities. So the constituents that we're talking about here are what some other people might call primary stakeholders, but we're gonna talk about what this all means and how Keystone Accountability as an organization, as a support organization, has been working on this for a long time. And in fact, I would argue was a big champion and an early adopter uh, that has really pushed our, us as a sector to become much more rigorous about collecting uh, the voices of those who are supposed to benefit from our activities. David Bonbright worked also with the Aga Khan Foundation and with Ashoka, another entity that supported social entrepreneurs well before it became fashionable. And he's also worked with the Oak and Ford Foundation amongst others. So David, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Tosca. It's great to be here. So let's dive in. What is constituency voice, first of all? 
Well, you gave a good introduction, Tosca. Constituent voice um, is, is our tool. It's the tool we've developed, but it, uh, I think if you had to put a label over it, I would say it's a continual improvement process tool. It's a, it's a tool that organizations can use for continual improvement. And the key to it that maybe distinguishes it from other tools for continual improvement is, is another word that I like to add to this phrase. I say that constituent voice is about continual improvement together. And by together, mm. we mean the staff of an organization and its primary constituents, the folks that are meant to benefit from their work and indeed other constituents that circle around or what you might say are stakeholders as well. We prefer the term constituent to stakeholder. We can get into that uh, uh, if you want. But, um, and, and the point of that is that the, the, the importance of the together word is that um, social change uh, and any kind of social change is is happening within complex systems where mm -hmm. different parts of the system are seeing different things at different times. And there's an important need if we are going to improve, if we're gonna actually solve these problems, there's an important and often neglected need to kind of ground truth what the different parts of the system are seeing against each other so that you come together and you say, okay, yeah, that's evidence. What, how do you see it? How do you see it? How does it impact you? And so that it, you build consensus and shared understanding. And so you can't have continual improvement. You can't keep getting better if you leave key stakeholders behind along the way. We see this mm. again and again and again. And so the idea here is to create a tool that actually brings us all together. They have this wonderful phrase that's often quoted from Africa, the African proverb, um, if you want to go fast, go alone. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go far, go together. And and uh, and constituent voice is a tool for for going far together. And might I just say for a moment, I can't help myself. That saying is also very relevant right now in the middle of the pa pandemic, isn't it? Indeed. But um, I do want you to talk a little bit more about why you prefer the term constituent over stakeholder. Uh, when I use the term in my work, sometimes I get somewhat blank looks. Sure. And, you know, this is a, I don't want to be precious and management consultancy <laughs> about these things. Um, and, you know, sometimes you see a lot of old wine and new bottles because that's what the purveyor needs to do in order to, oh, yeah. to stand out in the marketplace. I, I think in our case, we're, we do have a, a, a kind of real conceptual point and also a historical point. Stakeholder as a term emerged in the context, in the way that we're, it's now being widely used now, it emerged in the context of kind of evolution around uh, corporate impacts and corporate uh, uh, commercial corporate uh, uh, environmental and social reporting. And okay. as, as that field emerged and started in the 80s and, and really grew to be a big deal in the 90s, uh, that's how stakeholders and the idea of mapping your stakeholders and looking at different stakeholders came out and stakeholding as a concept um, and the notion was that corporations had stakeholders besides their shareholders. And Got so that, it. that's its historical kind of uh, journey that it's, it's taken into popular and management consciousness, if you will. 
and it was defined as people that are affected by the company. Mm-hmm. And we we try to distinguish the word constituent or the idea of constituent uh, and come at it in a slightly different way. We say it's it's more than being affected by. It's actually that we are we are in a particular context of an organization. The people that are surrounding it are constituent of the problem that the organization is addressing, and they are also constituent of the solution. And therefore. We we are drawing more from democratic theory, and this exactly. notion of constituent uh, or a political constituent in the context of representative democracy, and we're moving it over into the social change uh, uh, kind of development management context. Yes, so right. That's, well, what I hear in the word constituent is is citizen. Uh, you, yeah. you made a reference to political democracies, etc. And, and there is more of a citizen element. I loved what you said about uh, uh, people are the constituents of problems that the nonprofit addresses, but also have to be of the solution. But let's move now to make this a bit more concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some concrete ways in which nonprofits can gather uh, their constituents' voices? Um, and take account of those voices in decision-making. How does that look like sure. from a tool perspective? And what does Keystone does to support that? Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll get in a little bit into the how-tos now, but we'll circle around uh, back to some of the whys uh, because there, there's, a, there's a connection. And maybe just one more point about the, the, the kind of the – the, the kind of existential uh, ground on which this stands, overwhelmingly um, organizations are responding to important uh, societal problems and they're trying to enable people to make progress in their lives. And, um, and yet, in the way that organizations work, they tend to do things to people rather than doing things with them. It's just a natural default mm-hmm. in the way that organizations work. And, mm-hmm. and you need some kind of countervailing practice to mm. bring you back as an organization to your norms, which is to do things to help people or to do things with people so that they can help themselves, which is probably mm. the better way to put it. And so, so what, what, what Constituent Voice does practically is to try to create that countervailing um, tool. And the way it works is that you, you regularly and in a very light touch way, check with people to see, you, you basically answer three top line questions. Are you giving people what they want? And um, if not, uh, uh, how can you, how might you change so that you can do that? And mm-hmm. so, uh, and so if, now those aren't, there's, to get to the answers to those questions, you, you, we have developed a method that essentially blends the participatory methodologies that I grew up using in, in throughout the, my career since the early eighties, uh, and blending those with, um, the techniques of the customer satisfaction industry. And that was the kind of the breakthrough moment for me. I come out of development. I've worked in international development. I've never worked in the commercial space. Right. And, and at one point, a friend of mine um, at the Stanford Business School was listening to me rant and rave about the extent to which organizations don't really listen and respond to the people they claim to serve. 
the extent that they should. And he said, gee, David, maybe you should go talk to those people in the customer satisfaction industry. They sound a lot like you. And he's a smart guy. Uh, and so I, uh, I went and did that. This is Bill Meehan, by the way. Uh, and, oh, is it? Yeah. And, um, and so I went and, stu- and looked at the industry and read some books and read some, some articles and went and interviewed people in the industry and, and found that, wow, those techniques really did make a lot of sense. And that, indeed, we were not doing that in our normal uh, development practice. Mm. practices. And so we blended those ideas together. It wasn't just a straight up using customer satisfaction techniques, but we, we kind of blended them and adapted them. And that's why we call our method constituent voice. It's a kind of a blend of participatory methods from development and customer satisfaction. So it involves using surveys. So it's got five steps to the process, just very simply. The first step is to figure out great questions to ask people. Yeah. The design step. The second step is to get answers to those questions. And we mostly use surveys, but you don't only use surveys. There's other ways to ask questions than, than uh, surveys. And we, we're very agnostic about how you collect the data. We can come back to that. There's a lot of buzz now around using texts and phones to do surveys, but um, there's mm-hmm. lots of other ways as well. Um, and then once you've got the data, then you analyze it. So that's step three. And those analyses it's very important uh, that you bring in the values of, of inclusivity here and, um, and diversity and equity so that your analysis is identifying those most marginalized parts of any group that are being mm-hmm. left out and left behind. Mm. I always say when it comes to evaluating um, these things, the average is not your friend. Uh, because it disguises nice. the most important things that are happening out there uh, with your work. Um, so you it did could it. also, by the way, um, highlight the positive uh, outliers, right? Correct. The positive defense. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, we're doing so well with women over sixty. Why is that? What's going mm. on there? Mm. You know, and what can we learn from that to, right. to work with younger people who don't seem to be uh, as engaged with us, and so on. Right. Um, so then you, you move from there. So that's the third step. And then you have the most important step, which is the one that really the customer satisfaction industry doesn't do so much, which is, I think, distinctive to the participatory traditions of, of uh, development, which is you go back and you check with people and you do it in a, you can call it the dialogue step or closing the loop. Um, but it's where you, you kind of go back and you say, hey, uh, we asked you, but it's just a survey after all. It didn't tell us very much. Some interesting right. things, but we don't really know what it means, and we don't really know how to improve. Um, and you, and so you have that that uh, that co-creative. We sometimes call it sense making step. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, you start to get ideas for improvement actions. And the last step is to take those improvement actions, and most importantly. Make sure people know that you've taken these actions and then ask them whether those actions are actually making things better or worse. And And you do that, for instance, by benchmarking, going back after a certain period and say, has this made a difference? Exactly. And and then and you keep going around. So the cycle keeps going. So you you uh, you just add a new question. So every cycle, there's going to be some questions that are what I call the improvement questions and they're related you're not asking in a general question now. You're saying this thing we agreed we would do. Mm-hmm. How's that? 
And that's, that's not, that's a new question. And you still have some of the earlier questions that, that might continue that relate to service quality or um, whether something is changing and people see a, a benefit that's or not, you know, those kinds of questions. So, um, so there are, there are kind of what we call the evergreen or the always questions. And then you have yeah. new improvement questions. Yeah. And and you learn over time how to turn that wheel and keep it keep it going around. Yeah. And then there's one more dimension where organizations in certain settings of certain tools that you offer can benchmark themselves, not just against themselves, but also towards others in a certain pool, right? Or Absolutely. Or, that comes yeah. up in your analysis phase. And, and uh, you, so we, we often, that comes to what we provide sometimes, is we, we build benchmarks and in industries on certain certain themes and in our biggest uh most commonly used survey we've got 108 uh, uh organizations now that have taken it this is the international ngo uh, partner survey right so we've got quite a deep bench of benchmarks there right and i'll i'll ask you at the end to point us to those uh to more information about that so what are some common myths in this field of the collection of constituent voices when it comes to the social sector that mm. you bump into all the time, especially from the, in the from a mindset of leaders and managers? Yeah, so um, there's a lot. <laughs> um, the one of the big ones is that as soon as you say surveys, people think. Mm -hmm. Uh, research and they move into their research mindset and they see us as a research tool mm -hmm. and we're not a research tool even though we generate valid data that would meet research social science rigor standards we are an engagement tool or as I, I like to say it now a, uh, a a process tool for continual improvement together mm. uh, and and it's a different thing and so getting people to let go of their research mindset and move into much more of an engagement, continual improvement mindset is the hardest part of the work. Mm. Uh, and we come back to it again and again and again, because the continual improvement muscle is a new muscle in the social space. Uh, whereas yeah. the research muscle, boy, that's a strong one. And it, people default to it. It's, uh, it's really hard to pull them beyond it. Right. Or sometimes people roll their eyes to say, oh, I don't want more research. You guys never give back what you asked us, etc." Mm, that's, that's true, though. If you look at how the people deal with uh, the whole evaluation, it's, it's really treated more as a research tool than an than a improvement tool. And that's a shame because uh, good evaluations are, are are opportunities to improve, um, and they're often opportunities that are left on the table because it's thought yeah. of as a kind of research. But anyway, we we could spend days talking about that. Uh, talking about that. So, is there another common myth that comes to your mind? Well, related to that, I mean, there's lots of little ones uh, that are important. So, one we hear an awful lot is. Um, you know, you can't trust the surveys because uh, of all the biases that are associated with, with surveys. And we're in a power dynamic relationship. So people are going to be polite and they're not going to want to lose our service if they're critical of us and so on. And, um, and, you know, it's really interesting. It's incredibly clear. We've worked with over 200 organizations now doing this over the last 10 years. And it's, 
it's incredibly clear that it's relatively straightforward to create a, a, a practice of listening to people through surveys and other tools in which people will be incredibly frank with you about, uh, about the, the questions you're asking. This is I not see. a hard thing to do. You can, and we see again and again and again that when you take a, survey, a set of survey responses and you go back and you check it independently through interviews and, and other ways to just go deeper, kind of audit the survey, mm. Mm-hmm. What you find is that it's it's the people are really being very straight, and you've, mm. you've got gold there. So the claim, which I was going to ask you later on, is that that this is really no more than a popularity contest. You would debunk that right away on what is it now? Eighteen years of experience with. Um, well, we've only really been doing constituent voice for about a, a, a ten years. Before ten that, years. we were okay. we were um, getting there. Uh, so to be to be kind of. Uh, more rigorous about it, I would say we have ten years of experience with this tool. Okay. Um, but but uh, yes, I would debunk it, and I would say it's it's pretty straightforward. And um, I'll tell you a nice story. Uh, one of the questions we like to ask in surveys is, um, to what extent um, do you think? Um, that this organization, whatever the name of the organization is that's giving the survey, uh, will use your feedback effectively in this mm-hmm. survey and on a scale of zero to 10. And what we see pretty consistently is that the organizations that, um, that take our model seriously and really Im- implement it with fidelity and close the loop and, and really get, communicate back to people what they're doing with the survey results and make changes and so on, um, their answers to that question, their scores go up, obviously, because mm. people start to know, wow, at first the scores are pretty low because they have no idea and they're used to surveys that never come back. Right. And, and so the scores are low. And then they, they start, to, as they see people investing, they start to go up. And they see their scores on some of the substantive questions go down. And at first they're upset, the clients are upset by this because they're saying, well, wait a minute, we're leaning in, we're really listening and responding, but now we're getting lower scores on our service quality. And of course, what's happening there is that people are realizing, hey, they're listening. They're paying so attention. It's exactly. It's worth my while to be a little more thoughtful and a little more critical here, and not just tick the box, mm. but actually lean in and 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 push them in the direction that I want them to go. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And by so the way, that's what, think- that's what we call voice. My definition of voice is that you feel you feel that you have. It's worth your while to engage with an organization to make it better for you and your family. Mm. And, and we call our, we don't call our, our, our tool feedback, we call it constituent voice because we want to name it after the outcome, the thing we're trying to create, which is, is, is that voice. That's the goal of this tool. If mm. our, 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 our meta theory of change is if you get, if your constituents are engaged, if they have voice, you will realize uh, the outcomes that you're after more, more in the most efficient way. Interesting. So also still at a practical level, what are some roadblocks to watch out for for those NGOs that do aspire to embrace constituent voice as part of their uh, organizational systems and processes, if you will, for evaluation 
and for continuous improvement? The biggest roadblock is the capacity to respond. Um, it, you know, I, I, I did a piece of work. Um, um, the, this, this is a company that's going to remain nameless, even though the report's published. People, if want to be, if they're going to be clever sleuths, they can go find it. But we did an evaluation of a company. It wasn't a nonprofit that was uh, working with uh, tens of thousands of, of uh, smallholder coffee suppliers. Mm-hmm. And we, we worked with them for several months to, to, to kind of do, do research, and it was research, into the attitudes and feelings of their, of their uh, suppliers, their, these, coffee, these smallholder coffee farmers. And at the end of it, our main recommendation was turn this into a constituent voice system and keep taking the pulse and you will really, you will, you, you and they will both thrive. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do it. And uh, I thought I was really disappointed because uh, I thought they, they really got it. And I thought they were, they really were going to. And three years later, I went back to them for another reason that came up. And uh, because we were writing up some, some, a chapter for a book, and it was going to involve looking back at this case. And they said, oh, we have good news for you. We did implement your recommendation. We do have this system now in place. Yeah. Um, the reason we didn't do it right away was we had no way to respond uh, to these farmers when, when, uh, when so we, could have, we would have had the feedback, but we wouldn't have been able to actually do anything. So we spent a year putting the capacity in place to respond, re- rejigged our whole operation. And then when we had that, then we instituted the, the constituent voice system. So I thought that was a, a good example of a, a very thoughtful manager. Uh, this is the, the general manager of this company to, yeah. to, to, the, to that roadblock. Mm-hmm. But your general observation is that one of the biggest obstacles for actually embracing this is that when organizations do not have the capacity to respond to the, f- to, I'm now hesitating to use the word feedback because you told mm. us just now that you prefer not to use that, but the data um, to respond to it in terms of actions for continuous improvement. Yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's just important to be, very intentional about building your constituent voice system so that you are able to be responsive as it works. So you can start small and you can keep it narrow and you can build up your capacity. But I think the general principle of don't ask if you're not going to do anything is, is a good one to have. And don't ask yeah. if you have no capacity to do anything uh, is a yeah. good one to have. And so starting very narrow, for instance, and then if you uh, find it very valuable, both for the constituents and for the organizations to expand from there as one, are you finding that in terms of mindsets of staff in NGOs or leaders or managers or boards that there are obstacles there? Definitely. I mean, there's a big one, and I'm not the only one who says this. Lots of people point to this from time to time. There's a, a um, often unexamined, we know better mentality that's, yeah. that sits in our profession. And at one level, it's understandable. You know, you go to school for a dozen years to, to build up some expertise. And, and by gosh, you better go out there and <laughs> demonstrate your value to the world with your expertise. Or after all, what are you doing? Right. Um, 
And I, I think it takes a long time to learn how, or it seems to take a long time to learn how to distinguish between expertise and technical skill and, and scientific and other kinds of, of, um, of you know, more uh, pr practical knowledge and the process of decision-making and empowerment related to decision-making and how the, to make the two things fit together. Mm -hmm. So great, uh, great uh, technical assistance providers kind of leave no trace, you know, that the, the ultimately the person or the persons who've benefited from their input think they've done it themselves in the end. That's, that's mm. the highest level of the game, but that's a very rare skill. And, mm. um, you know, I always say we need top down and we need bottom up, but we need them in a way that leaves the the, the power to make decision in the hands of the people that are living the problem and who will live the benefits and are meant to carry the benefits. And it's that mm. last piece, it's the how that we need the bottom and the top down, uh, bottom up and top down connecting. That's the mm. tricky part. And we've tried to create a tool that will help make that, you know, kind of stay on track. That's so interesting. I'm just making a link now. This is more of a sidebar to myself, but to that uh, trend, if you will, in the um, um, in the digital campaigning realm. So where you have digital NGO campaigning platforms uh, that are working more with a people-powered form of campaigning rather than a staff-led form of campaigning. And I see some analogies there that I'd like to explore at some point in, in the future. I do a little bit of work on that as well. Um, mm. So if we want to be you know, realistic, however, I could imagine that a leader of an NGO listening to this interview says, yeah, this is all nice and well, but as a leader, I have to balance many competing values as well as priorities. How would you advise them how they should balance the, 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 the data coming from primary constituents, clients, customers, beneficiaries, whatever you want to call that, with that of other stakeholders and their views, their perspectives, whether it's their boards, their donors, their own staff, uh, expectations from their peers, expectations when they operate in networks and, and coalitions and alliances, et cetera. How should they balance these many competing values and data points and, and keep constituent voice part of that mesh, if they, you will? Mm. Well, I guess I, I pretty clearly believe that the primary uh, constituent voice is, are the people that are meant to benefit. And that's what we call that. The, in, our, in our lingo, we talk about the primary constituents who are the people that are the raison d'etre the program, the people living the problems that are meant to have the benefits. And I think the, from there, the rest of the challenge for nonprofit managers at every level is educating all the stakeholders about um, their, the, those views uh, from the base and, and helping people reflect on how their views relate to the, to, to the people, to the, to the primary constituents. So mm -hmm. if you think about it, if you're a board member of an organization or you're a funder of an organization, you don't care ultimately about the organization. You care about the, the primary constituents. That's why you're right. there. You're trying to solve a problem in the world. And so 
And so everything else is a means, and, uh, and therefore you want to align to the primary constituent voice. The problem is it's never been available in an actionable, continuous way before. Mm. Um, and that, that information just wasn't possible. And I always point to the customer satisfaction industry itself as a great analogy. So in the 19, this is an industry that's been around since the early 60s. Okay. And uh, if we were having a conversation, it was 1961, and I said to you, Tosca, I just filled in a customer satisfaction form. You would say to me, what's that? They didn't exist. Right. The world then was a world of market research, and, and, and people went out and talked with customers and things. But, but it was this, this, this thing that we all understand and is morphed now in the digital age to being open feedback systems like Yelp and so on. Yeah. Um, that, that, that just was not even imaginable, or it wasn't imagined. And it emerged in the 60s, and it, and it, it, it grew very rapidly to the, where it is today, and it's become an ubiquitous and integral part of customer service. And no, no self-respecting company would not do you know, customer feedback. That's and, right. And, and we're kind of... We're kind of in that 1961 moment in social change, you know. We're, wow, maybe, that's maybe depressing. We're, maybe we're at 1962, you know, because the last <laughs> two years we're seeing some movement and some uptake around these ideas. But, but we're nowhere near where we should be. And so I think the the big job is a job of, of really for for NGO leaders is is a job of communicating this the importance of this. And, and reconciling it to all the other uh, constituent perspectives. Interesting. It's, that's a good charge uh, to leave us with. Let me ask you one more kind of provocative question before we run out of time. Mm-hmm. Tell me something in your realm, in your professional realm, something that you know to be true that almost no INGO agrees with you on, at least not an INGO leader or manager. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I, I don't think I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I, I could say that. I think what I see a lot of is um, like, if I, if I, I talk to a lot of INGO leaders and I generally get a lot of agreement uh, around these themes, but okay. then I don't see necessarily the action and the follow through. So if you take real agreement as action, as opposed to what people say, which like, I do. Like, mm-hmm. I, like ING leaders will say, we believe the, the primary constituent uh, is paramount and mm-hmm. we, we need to organize our systems to be accountable to them. I think that's a standard, a st- pretty, pretty common response. But if you actually look at the behavior, uh, it's not there yet. Uh, and only a handful. So I'll give you, I'll, I'll close with this example. So we do this partner survey and this relates to one level up the value chain. So we don't only get feedback from, and by the way, I'm not against the word feedback per se. I just saying we've named our tool voice because we wanted to name it not about the verb, but about the outcome, about the result. Right. Um, But um, so we want to get feedback not only from primary constituents, but in many cases you have these long development value chains and INGOs working with local partners that are then working with people on the ground. And that relationship between the INGO or the funder and the local partner is very important. And so we have we do a lot of surveys of local partners about 
uh, the the INGO feedback, and we we do it in a researchy survey. It's a big survey. It's not a constituent voice, light touch, continuous uh, tool. It's a okay. Heavy, takes an hour to fill it in. Sometimes we hear from people who fill it in and complain, and it generates a whole lot of data. And our main recommendation to all these INGOs is, you know, it's okay to do this kind of in-depth research once in a while, but but really it's more more valuable to take the pulse of your partners continuously and then work together to improve the relationship and address the issues. And of 108 INGOs that have taken this survey over the last 12 years, Mm-hmm. I think it's a handful that have actually moved from the, the the kind of heavy research survey and they come back year after year to do it and say it's valuable mm-hmm. and this moving to the pulse. And, and I, and I think that's where the, the real value lies. That's okay. And, and so when we talk about pulse taking, because I'd like to end the interview on that practical, I, I want to make sure that our audience can walk away with something they can visualize. So that is, I think what you call micro surveys Correct. that the NGO does with its primary constituents uh, at frequent touch moments when the constituent is in touch with the NGO through micro surveys of two, three questions that they can do on their phone very quickly on their way out of uh, a touch point, if you will, with, with the NGO. That's how I should imagine. And so we have, we collect many moments of these micro surveys and look for trends across that data. Is that how exactly? And you can move that up a level to a, an, a bigger organization serving its partners, also at touch points. Yes, yes. So it's the same, same thing principle. at that level. Yeah, at, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, okay. So since we have run out of time, let me ask you if uh, our audience wants to learn more about you, David Bonbride, as well as about uh, Keystones work, its services, its products, et cetera, where should they go? They should go to one of two websites, the Keystone Accountability website, which is keystoneaccountability.org, or you can go to our online um, feedback platform, which is for managing constituent voice systems, and there's there's a free version of that, so they can start to play around with that, and that's called the feedbackcommons.org feedbackcommons.org. And we will have that uh, in our show notes so that people can check that out. Um, David, I want to thank you for being willing to give, um, give us uh, a bit of your time to, uh, to educate us about constituent voice. I, am, I have been very excited about the mechanism for, for a long time. And um, I look, look forward to seeing how you keep pushing the sector to close that gap between rhetorically accepting the importance of the principle of a constituent voice and, uh, and actually acting on that. Thank you very much. And I wish you both, um, I wish you both remaining, continuing good health as we go <laughs> through this uh, pandemic until we talk again. Great. Thank you, Tosca. And thanks for your effort to highlight these issues in your podcast. Cheers. Thanks for listening to NGO Soul and Strategy. If you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. 
You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author, and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org and follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So, until we talk again, this is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.